grateful for opportunities like this that come our way. Uh, uh, we're in First Peter chapter 5 today. I bring you greetings from West Texas where I was for a week and I um, uh, had a great gospel meeting. I was very happy to be with those good folks out there and they'd asked me for some time ago about coming and I said that I would uh, do my best and that, that time came and so I'm very happy that we were able to be together. We baptized six while we were out there. We had ten restorations while we were out there. And uh, I spoke uh, three times every day at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, and 8 o'clock at night. And was there for seven days. And so I um, uh, got back uh, late uh, last night. Uh, this area, I don't know exactly what you call this area. It... Uh, Sheffield, Ira, and that part is 80 miles north of uh, Mexico. It's about two hours east of Big Ben, so wherever that is. It's beautiful country out there. I'd never seen a country quite like that uh, uh, before, as I recall, and so I enjoyed being out there. But uh, I was telling Carol on the way back home, I said, look at these trees. Aren't these trees beautiful? You're not going to see that out in West Texas like that. Uh, you see this, all this pretty green grass we got out here? You're not going to see that way out there in West Texas. I said, we're really blessed by being able to live in this part of the country and uh, the beauty of it and that kind of thing. So I'm very happy to be back with you, though. Uh, those good brethren are very appreciative of us and our work together. They listen to us on the uh, Internet, and we're very grateful uh, for them and their faithfulness. Now I'm in First Peter chapter 5, and... As uh, Gail suggested, we might be able to finish our chapter today, a rather short chapter, about 14 verses, and I tried to outline it for you, and it's a very simple outline. I tried to do this as we went through the book First Peter so that we could get the gist of each chapter, and this final chapter talks about elders, first of all. He makes an appeal, uh, the elders, and then, of course, the second point, sub-point under that, the members. And then after that, the concluding matters, the assistance to Peter. And um, I thought what I would do today is say that there's a mistake up there on that somewhere. Let's see if you can pick it out. But I'm not going to do that. So, <laughs> so now everybody's looking at the chart. <laughs> I don't know. There may very well be a mistake on that. I typed that out and, and uh, uh, made that chart together, but... So when I do some typing, it gets to be rather creative. So there could very well be a mistake there. If you see one, let me know. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Um, this translation, this English Standard translation, I like it in a lot of ways. It helps us out. It's a... It's a little more helpful than some of the other translations might be. It tries to be very accurate. He exhorts us. Uh, he exhorts the elders. Uh, I think in this first verse, though, he's talking about office holders. Uh, by that I simply mean uh, the man who desires the office of a bishop, desires a good work. It's not just an office to be filled, but it is a work to be led and done. And I think that's what he has in mind here in verse 1. Keep in mind, sometimes the word elder can refer to older man. 
and we have to look very carefully as to how the word is used in its context. But in this context, I think it's pretty clear he's talking about the elders of congregations, especially when he uses the word shepherd in verse 2, shepherd the congregation. Now, don't neglect the duty, don't neglect the responsibility, but shepherd the congregation. You and I have read and studied carefully about the um, qualifications of elders, haven't we, in First uh, Timothy chapter 5, and we have also... Uh, looked at them, or First Timothy chapter 3, and we've also looked at them in Titus chapter 1. And uh, when a person qualifies himself and is so selected by the congregation to lead in a spiritual way the people, the flock of God, then it is a great responsibility, isn't it? And that's what he says here in chapter 5 and verse 1. Uh, so I exhort the elders. And so it's a, as an office of work. Now, I think we need to understand, and I'll make mention again, the idea elder and eldership is not just some kind of honorary position, but it is a work that is to be done. And uh, it is a great job. It's labor-intensive work, and it's a labor of love. It is not something that is an easy road for anyone to, to go down, but it's a difficult road. And I'm sure anyone who served as an elder can understand how difficult that particular road is. So I exhort. So he's saying, I'm, I want to build you up, and I want to encourage you. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. So he's one as well. He's met those qualifications and has been selected as such. And a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He said, I I was there. I, I understood as a witness of it, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. That oversight gives us some ideas to the responsibility of elders. Elders have oversight. Oversight in matters of expediency, not oversight in matters of doctrine. Uh, God has given us the doctrine. Jesus has given us the teaching. It is inspired teaching. So elders don't come and create new teaching. Uh, That's not their role. But their role is to see that the teaching is adhered to and that the teaching is given and taught to the flock. That is their role. It is a, a position of authority, isn't it? They have some authority here that has been delegated to them. Hence the term oversight. That goes along with some of those words that we see with regard to elder. You have words like bishop and presbyter, shepherd. We see the word shepherd here, elder. Uh, The term elder itself originally conveys the idea of an older man, but it takes on new meaning when it talks about that office of work. And so he's an older person. He's not a novice, as the qualifications tell us, but he's an older person, has experience and knowledge and, and, and spiritual maturity about him to shepherd. And so he's encouraging them, do the job. Do the job of overseeing. Shepherd the flock of God. Hence the terminology, a shepherd uh, leads the flock of God. God's people are called a flock here. And that's not new for us either. We've seen that in other passages of Scripture. But the flock, now I'm not a, she, a sheep man, I don't know much about it, but I'm told flock, the flock need to be led. And uh, driving them is not the way to go. You can try to drive them, I guess, I don't know. But sheep are uh, animals that need to be led. Shepherd the flock of God, lead them. Lead them in the right direction. Lead them in the pathway of righteousness. Those that are among you. I see these shepherds here do not shepherd those, that flock over there. The shepherds here oversee this flock here. 
the shepherds here do not oversee somebody else's flock over there. Uh, that is a, a Roman mistake. And, of course, the diocese concept has evolved because of that idea. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. You're responsible for this flock right here. And you need to uh, see after them. And that's a full-time job right there just about, isn't it? Seeing after the flock that's among us. See after their spiritual maturity. See after their life. See after the teaching. It's not uh, just a matter of balancing a checkbook, though that's involved in it. But it's also involved in it is seeing after the spiritual maturity of each of those members. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So they have oversight there in that matter. Came along in the 50s and 60s this idea elders don't have any oversight or any authority except by example. Well, that wasn't right. And we had to go through that, that idea. But here we see that they do have uh, authority, delegated authority in matters of expediency. Now, what do I mean by that? Let me be clear in the terms that I'm using. In the judgmental matters to expedite what needs to get done. Now, I've already covered the base about, you know, we're not to, um, elders are not to oversee in creating new doctrine. But we, or elders, they, um, exercise decision-making responsibilities as to get the job done that they're supposed to do. See that the teaching, the doctrine is taught and, and uh, relate to the needs of the congregation that way. Now, he says also in the passage, not under compulsion, but willingly. Now, I think we ought to underline that. Elders should not serve under compulsion, as if to say, well, nobody else will do it. I guess I'll do it, or put the pressure under the guy to uh, become an elder. He's not to serve under compulsion. He's not to serve under compulsion in the sense that He's not forced into it, but he's to serve what? He says willingly, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. He's not doing it for the pay. Now, it could be, and the Bible does give authorization to the matter of an elder who's full-time in the work uh, deserves to be compensated for that full-time work. And there is certainly biblical precedent for that, authority for it, pattern authority for it. And so, if that is the case, then that should be done. If that's the need and can be done, if we have the wherewithal to do it, then we should do it. If you have a full-time individual or individuals shepherding the flock of God. I tell you, it runs a whole lot better when you do. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain. He's not doing it for the money. And anybody who serves as an elder knows that it's not... uh, uh, it's not for the uh, glory or the pats on the back or for any kind of financial remuneration as it is to serve God and a desire to serve God in that wonderful way. Not domineering over those in your charge. Um, he should not be the kind of person that um, is overruling and overbearing, but in a gentle way leads. He leads in the right way. And... Um, uh, I think it's important the leadership style that we see in the pages of the New Testament are men who served as elders of the church, but they led in a kind way, a loving way, because they loved the flock, but yet they were determined uh, that this is the way we must go because it's the right thing for us to do. Elders come along in their meetings and they decide, you know, should we do this or not? Well, first thing they ask is it scriptural? 
Is this a scriptural thing to do? Is the Bible authorized? If the Bible doesn't authorize it, just, you know, that's the end of it right there. Well, yeah, it's a biblically authorized thing. Well, are we, uh, are we capable of doing it? Uh, do we have the wherewithal to do it? Is it a wise thing for us to do? If, we, if it's scriptural and it's a wise thing to do, and if you're capable of doing it, then they may decide, yes, we'll do that type of thing. Maybe they will come up with a decision, you know, should we have a radio program? Well, is that a scriptural thing to do? Yeah, it is, to preach the gospel, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Uh, is it a wise thing to do? Yeah, that's a very wise expedient. Are we capable of doing it? Well, financially, yeah, we're capable of doing that. We can do it. And then the elders decide, yes, we'll go ahead with that. Now, they make their decision-making processes in a loving, kind way as to what's best for the church of the Lord. They're not domineering over those in their charge, but being examples to the flock. Uh, little children can look up to elders and say, that's the kind of person I want to be. I want to be like him. They're examples. Yes, sir. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That there's so much to it, the activity of it. And I think you raised a good point, Marvin, and that is that um, it's one thing to talk about the office, and it's another thing to talk about the activity and the function and what all is involved in it. And there's certainly a lot to uh, be said in that matter. But First Peter chapter 5 is certainly giving us an important consideration with regard to the matter of the need for it, the exhortation to them, and the encouragement that they are to receive. And, uh, but the point here, but being examples to the following, they're, they're examples in leadership, they're examples in Christian living, they're examples and, uh, that we should emulate and follow with regard to how we deal with people. And when the chief shepherd appears, verse 4, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Um, several different kinds of crowns referred to in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. Here is an unfading crown. It's simply a figure of speech given to, it's a victor's crown. And uh, you see here as I make point four, the elders, the role model, the responsibility two and three, and now verse four, the reward. And when the chief shepherd appears. Chief shepherd's Jesus. Chief shepherd is Jesus. Now this, I don't want to be misunderstood here, um, but the original word here that's translated chief shepherd, R.K., the first shepherd, I guess we would be right in saying the main shepherd, the ultimate shepherd. That's the, the, that's the idea. There are no main shepherds, ultimate shepherds in the local congregation. This is the one and only shepherd. Uh, and when the chief shepherd, congregations should not have chief shepherds. Uh, two or three congregations together should not promote a chief shepherd over them. Uh, that is not within the pattern found in the New Testament. But there is a chief shepherd. It's not in the local congregation. The chief shepherd is Jesus Christ. He's the one that is referring to, and he's talking about his appearing, and when the chief shepherd appears. And so he's talking about Jesus there in that regard. You will receive the unfading 
crown, the victor's crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger. And so that brought us to point B of the main point that he's making initially here, the members. So as we look at this section of the passage, verses 5 through 11, then we're going to see uh, something of uh, the responsibility of members. And it is a two-way street, isn't it? Elders have responsibility. We have responsibility as a congregation. Elders have responsibility to lead in the pathway of righteousness and what is right. Members of the congregation have responsibility to follow and to comply with the leadership of their elders. Likewise, you who are younger, well, that's us, that's the members, be subject to the elders. And uh, again, I think he's referring to this office of work. He's not just referring to older people, older men. He's talking about the office of work in the congregation of leadership, spiritual leadership. So be subject to that and respect the authority of your elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, we ought to mark that passage in our Bible, this this matter about humility. You You know the most humble person that ever lived? Jesus Christ. The most humble person that ever lived. You know the most obedient person that ever lived? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the most obedient person that ever lived because Jesus was the most humble person that ever lived. And he certainly serves as the example for us in humility. Now, so he says, as us as members, we have a responsibility. But then all of us have a responsibility with regard to this matter of humility. All of you is his point. I'm in uh, verse 5. All of you with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, a person that's so proud can't do anything with a person like that. If he's filled with a lot of pride, if they're filled with a lot of pride, then they're not going to be able to teach them anything. They're not going to learn anything. They think they know it all already. But God opposes that kind of idea. Now, we could go back to a lot of Bible passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament. A lot of passages in Proverbs about that very matter, about pride. There's a good sense about pride. But here he's talking about the, the bad use of or the element or emotion of pride. The bad part about that, if I may say it that way, is that I'm thinking about myself. I want everything my way. Uh, that's the kind of person I am. I'm a very proud person, and I know what's best all the time. Well, he says, now that's a bad type of attitude to have. God opposes the proud. Somebody goes down the road, <clears throat> and I guess I'm thinking about this because my yard needs mowing again. But somebody goes down the road and says, uh, look at that yard. Isn't that a pretty yard out they've got out there? That person takes a lot of pride in their house. Or they go down the road and they say, look at those people there. They take a lot of pride in that church building. Now, that's a good thing. Uh, see after and not neglect it, but make sure that responsibilities are met like they should be. Now, that's a good use of the term pride, and the Bible teaches that. But here we're talking about the bad emotion of the term pride, and God opposes that. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So you and I got to work on that. We've got to work on our attitude constantly. It's something that we have to uh, be careful about and guard against, that we don't allow pride and prejudice and that kind of thing to rear its ugly head in our life. So he's saying in verse 5, likewise, you who are younger. So that's the focus now. And we're on part B of Roman numeral 1, the appeal by Peter. And the appeal by Peter's to the congregation. Now, this thing about humility is not over with. It comes to verse 6 as well. He says, humble yourselves before 
therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. You know, just don't worry about being great. Don't worry about that. If you are to be great, God will make you great. Don't worry about becoming great or being great or being important. If you are important, God make you important. So don't be concerned about that. So you humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Calls it the mighty hand of God. God's able to do more than we realize. It's a mighty hand. Does God literally have a hand? No. It's called anthropomorphism. This anthropomorphic type of literature, this literary device, is trying to help us understand the work of God and the power of God and the providence of God. And it's a mighty work that God does in our lives. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. He's powerful. And he can do great things in your life and do great things with you and be submissive to him so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And, of course, not only here but in life to come. Now, verse 7 needs to be underlined. I have it underlined in my Bible in red. I have the letter, I mean the number 7, circled so that I don't forget this because I know I need this. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, that you need to do that. Casting all your anxieties. English Standard Version uses the word anxieties. What other word could we use there as a um, synonym for anxiety? Worry, that's the one that comes to my mind. Care, that's a good one. Cast all your worries, cast all your cares on him. Casting all your cares, worries, anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, I believe that word care means more than just he's concerned about me. He's going to do something about it. He's concerned about me. He loves me. But that's not just in the abstract. He's going to be active in doing what I need. Now, I need to be doing something also, not only casting my cares on him. But let's go to a passage in the Sermon on the Mount. That comes to my mind. Do you remember that uh, uh, passage that talks about ask and seek and knock? Uh, that we should be uh, doing. And I'm looking for it. And the reason I can't find it is because I'm in the book of Mark. And I need to be in the book of Matthew. And there you go. Thank you, Scott. It is um, verse 7. 7. Matthew 7 and 7. I should be able to remember that. Ask, seek, and knock. Now, the way to remember that is A-S-K. Ask, seek, knock. Ask. And as you look at this, I'm in Matthew 7 and verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. So A-S-K, ask. Ask, seek, knock. Now, the reason I'm kind of thinking about that is because asking seems to be the startup. But it gets a little more intense when you seek. And it gets even more intense when you knock. So the continual uh, praying and asking and persistence is certainly involved in 
I'm turning all this over to the Lord. Now, that's why I thought of this verse, Matthew 7, verse 7. And you may want to mark that and, and make uh, a comment in your margin about Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, about turning to the Lord in times of difficulty and trial. But I think the quintessential passage, at least in my mind, with this matter, oh, there's so many, really, that come to my mind, but would be Philippians chapter 4. Now, that we ought to go to. And in Philippians chapter 4, in nothing be anxious, that's the verse to uh, keep in mind as well. Rejoice in the Lord always, verse 4. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. You ought to mark that. That's verse 6. Now, I'm thinking about these passages because of my present study, 1 Peter chapter 5. Cast all you care on the Lord. Cast all your anxieties on the Lord, for He cares for you. But the Bible is filled with that. And the Bible is trying to tell us, you must learn to depend on God. I don't care if you're studying Isaiah or if you're studying 1 Peter. The point is still the same. Don't put your trust in Egypt, Isaiah would say. Put your trust in God. Don't put your trust in yourself, Peter would say. Put your cares in the hands of the Lord. Now, this does not mean, and I always feel the need to mention this as I go along and bring this subject up, that we can just sit back and not do anything. We've got to do everything we can to remedy the problem. But there are some things we just can't change, and some things we just can't uh, remedy, and we're not to worry over that which we cannot change, casting all your anxieties. Now, I'm back in First Peter chapter 4 and 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares. Now, I'll say again, it's not just a matter of him folding his arms and say, well, I'm really concerned about that for you. When it says he cares, he providentially cares. He providentially cares. He is active in this particular matter. It's not just an abstraction. By an abstraction, we simply mean it's a good idea. This is a good idea, but it's not real. This is real. God really cares, and God really does. And he's saying, ask and seek and knock, and you continue to intensify the asking, and you continue to be involved in that. And I'll tell you what, God sometimes will say yes, and sometimes God will say no, and sometimes God will say, you're going to have to wait a while on that. And I think I can see illustrations of that in the pages of the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. So I have and circled in black, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And I want to remember that. That's why I emphasize it and I highlight it in my Bible. Be sober-minded. I got that underlined as well. Have a well-balanced attitude about yourself and about others. To be sober-minded is a Bible way of saying, have a good balanced attitude about yourself. Have a good balanced attitude about you, what you can do and what you cannot do and be satisfied and then cast all your cares upon the Lord. So have a sober-minded attitude about yourself and be watchful. Why? Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now... If we went to Amos chapter 3 and Amos chapter 4, 
We'd read passages, we won't do that today because of the time, but we read passages about how Amos was telling the children of Israel in the north, God's going to come down on you hard. You need to repent, and it's going to be like a lion after a prey. And once the lion is finished with the prey, there's going to be a leg over here, there's going to be an ear over there, and that's all you're going to be able to find of the prey. That's what God's going to do with you. That comes to mind when I think about our adversary, be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So the imagery of a lion devouring uh, something is pretty clear in our minds, and we can see that spiritually. He's out there after us, and he's real. Never get the idea that Satan is just some mythical figure or some kind of abstraction whereby we say he's evil personified or something like that. He's real. And in so doing, he's going to destroy everyone he possibly can. And so he says, verse 9, resist him. Resist the devil. Now, that's not the only time we've ever seen that. James tells us, if you'll resist the devil, he will flee from you. Resist him. Firm in your faith going to take, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, he adds that to the mix to help us understand others are suffering like you are. Others are having to go through this, just as you have to go through that. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let me talk a little bit about verse 10. And after you have suffered, you're going to suffer. Uh, But the fact is it's not going to be forever. It's going to be a little while in this life. Comparatively speaking, it's a small period of time compared to eternity. Now, it could also have a little more specific reference in that he may be talking about destruction of the city of Jerusalem. He may be talking about some immediate kinds of suffering that are uh, on the horizon. And after you have suffered a little while. But whatever the specific referent that he has in mind here, the point is the same. It's not going to last forever. The God of all grace, what? Who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. How did he do that? Through the gospel of Christ. He's called us through the gospel. Second Thessalonians 2 and verse 14 tells us that. So we have been called. Christ is a calling Christ. And he calls through the gospel of Christ. Who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And so it's a wonderful promise that he gives us in this particular passage with regard to the matter of how God is going to care for us and be with us. So uh, the point that I uh, am making here, live as a servant, verses 5 through 7. And then I notice, I think, live as a soldier, verses 8 and 9, because we've got an enemy there. And so I thought, well, I have to come up with an S word to make this really look cool. So I came up with servant and soldier, and the sufferer fell right into place, verse 10 and 11. The only reason I do this, it helps me remember this, and I want to remember it. The members are to be servants, they are to be soldiers, to face against their enemy, 
and they have to suffer as a Christian will suffer. And then I come to the second point of the chapter, the assistance to Peter, verses 12 through 14, by Sylvanus. Who is Sylvanus? Anybody know? Who? Silas. Silas. Yeah, thank you. It's Silas. Uh, by uh, which, you know, we see Silas in various passages, Acts 15, things like that. It's just another name for Silas. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother. He's a faithful brother. That's how he describes him, verse 12. As I regard him, him as faithful brother. That's a wonderful compliment. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring. Now, what would you think this would be here? When he says that, think about that for a second. What is he giving us here in this uh, passage? He's giving us a purpose statement. Look for the purpose statements. For example, John 20, 30 and 31. Beautiful purpose statement. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Beautiful purpose statement as to the nature of the book of Acts. It's purpose. Look for the purpose statements when you find uh, uh, and you read these Bible passages. Because when you have a purpose statement, then you can see what he's getting at. He's getting at a point here. Here's his purpose statement. I have written briefly to you. Well, why? Exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. You know, now I've got that in red brackets in my Bible translation. Stand, four words. Stand firm in it. Stand firm in what? The true grace of God. Now, if I could never lose the true grace of God, what's the point of him admonishing me to stand firm in it? If I'm a once saved, always saved kind of guy, then why would stand firm in it mean anything at all? It wouldn't mean anything. It wouldn't have any meaning whatsoever. But he knows that there's always the possibility that when faced with adversity and suffering and trial and testing and temptations, there's the possibility that a person could throw up their hands and say, all right, that's it, I've had enough of that, I quit. I quit. Paul says, stand firm in it, and that's why I'm writing you. I'm writing you that you will stand firm in the true grace of God, the blessings that God has in store for us and has given uh, to us. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Uh, let me talk a little bit about 13. And 13 is kind of a, a passage that's rustled around and discussed and considered in all sorts of different matters. Who's the she there? That's one issue. Who is at Babylon? Babylon there. Uh, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. What does the my son have reference to? So we got several flags here to look at and to delve into. First of all, who's the she? Well, one of the first things that comes to mind, many writers will say that he's referring to the church. Well, that could be. Could be. Could be. I read somewhere where somebody said he's referring to his wife there. Well, I don't know if that's so or not. He had a wife. You know, that would give some people some consternation to say Peter had a wife. But it's true. How do we know it's true? Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. While Jesus was alive on earth, Peter had a wife. Peter was an elder. One of the qualifications of an elder 
husband of one wife. And so it says, she who has had Babylon. So it's clear he had a wife. But I don't know that he's referring to the she here as the wife, his wife so much. Maybe he's saying, my wife also sinned grief. But I really don't think so. I think verse 13, she who is at Babylon. Now, who's the Babylon? Where's the Babylon? Is Babylon that city in Mesopotamia? Or is Babylon a code name for Rome? And that's always been the discussion. Uh, Babylon was a great city in um, uh, the Babylonian Empire and a great capital. But then also, this could be a code name for Rome, they say. She who is at Babylon, or at Rome, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so it does seem to me that he's talking about the church. But the church where? Is he talking about the church in Rome? Well, the problem with that is that when, when you read Paul's epistle to the Romans, Peter's never mentioned. Uh, at the end of the book of Romans, he lists several people there. And he's talking about friends. He's talking about associates in Rome and what's going on in Rome. And Peter's never mentioned there. Uh, there is the discussion that Peter was in Rome, and then there are those who say that we have no record of Peter ever being in Rome. So I'm going to have to leave it with you. Uh, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, I think the church, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Now that was a little easier. The my son passage refers to the idea that Peter converted Mark. And that, or perhaps Mark is a protege, sort of a, a student of Peter. And there's a lot of evidence for that. So that's certainly not much of a problem there when he calls Mark his son. He's not referring to Mark being a biological heir. He's trying to say, I taught him. I was his tutor. I was his mentor. Uh, Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This uh, kiss of love, of course, is a kind of a first century type of greeting. And it was just a type of, it was similar to the shaking of hands. wasn't shaking hands, but it was a kind of a, a hug and that kind of thing. didn't have any sexual element to it at all, but it was a greeting type of thing. Yes, ma'am. Not to my knowledge, no. We might, find a, uh, we might find a passage that does say that. I don't know that we'd ever see Jerusalem referred to as Babylon. Uh, Jerusalem's always referred to the city of the great king, the city of God, the city of Zion. Um, I can think of several names that were used to describe Jerusalem, but I don't know. Now, it could be that uh, Jerusalem might have been referred to as Babylon. I don't know. Somebody else. I don't know that it takes away from the total message of the book and the total message of the chapter at all because I can't with clarity identify that exactly. Was Peter at Rome? I'm not sure that I could ever say that. I'm not going to say that just because a denomination says he was. I'm going to say that because evidence shows that he was. And I don't know that there is evidence for that. Um, She who is at Babylon. Maybe he is referring to the Lord's church in the east. And for that reason mentions it that way. If he is using Babylon as a code word for Rome, I've got to see something to help me understand that. Yes, sir? Yeah. Well, they're ch- the church, I think. Chosen. The people of God. It's like, um, and that's a good question, Jimmy. The, uh, that comes up in Ephesians chapter 1. God chose people who chose him is the way I like to say it. It seems like it helps me keep it clear in my mind. 
Uh, he chose the people who chose to obey him. At, I think so, right. A chosen group, likewise chosen. Who is likewise chosen? So, you know, I think that lends to me, that lends uh, the idea of the church there, wherever that is. And uh, it's clear he references Mark here. And uh, my son, I think the my son part's not too hard to understand. But what does he have exactly in mind, verse 13? So, you know, when you pick up a commentary or something like that on First Peter, go to chapter 5, 13, see what to say about that. And look at the reasoning there involved in that. Though, even though that part is clear, still it doesn't take away from the great message of Peter when he talks about in chapter 5, elders, members, and final greetings, which we are at at the present. Now that will bring our First Peter to a close.